Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Remaining Steadfast in Distressing Times, with a message entitled Spiritual Warfare. So turning your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 to chapter 3, verse 5, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Great many of us, when we become parents, try to protect our children, at least, you know, when they're young and tender, from the, from the harsh realities of the world. The time will come soon enough when they come to realize that it really is a tough world out there. Furthermore, there are wars and disease and hatred and cruelty, and all of these are a part of living in a fallen world. And we all know, that is, if we're at all wise, that we can't protect them from those things forever. And so we entrust them into God's faithful hands. But there are some children who have to face the ugliness very early on. We know that hundreds of thousands of children die in war each year. And that, of course, doesn't account for the serious injuries they face in war. And that's just the start. I mean, think of the nations in the world where young girls are sold as prostitutes. And most of us don't know that according to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, that there are an estimated 100,000 American children trafficked each year. Oh, God have mercy. You know, if you let yourself think about all the evil that happens every day in this world, I mean, it would truly terrify our souls. We know that one of the reasons for this profound evil is that there is an evil being. His name is Satan. He's a fallen angel, and he has no compassion for the human race. Knowing that human beings are created in the image of God, he seeks, as John said in John 10, verse 10, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. In John 8, Jesus called him the father of lies. That's to say, all lies that have ever been told have their origin in him. He has propagated them. In that same verse, Jesus also said that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. He inspired Cain to kill Abel. He inspired the chief priest and the religious authority to arrange for Jesus to be murdered. But he's not content with that knowing that he has been defeated by Jesus on the cross. Now in his hatred, he has made the followers of Jesus his favorite target. Revelation 12, 17 says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, without getting into the details of the identity of the woman... We know the dragon in that passage is Satan himself. He's the commander-in-chief of all of the demons. And he has declared war on all who hold the testimony of Jesus, and that is our present warfare. And the reason I began by saying that parents often want to withhold the crueler parts of the world from their children is that we might have thought that Paul begat spiritual children in Thessalonica and they might have wanted to spare them the news that the minute they come to Christ, they would be launched into spiritual warfare. You know, we might say, well, let's hold back on that information until they grow and gain a little more maturity. But of course, as we've been studying 1 Thessalonians, we've seen that there was no time for that. The glorious discovery that that God had sent his son to be their savior was immediately attended by a riot in the city along with the demand from the believers for payment from them as security that there would be no further riots in the city. And then the new church immediately became the object of suspicion and raw, unhidden hatred and animosity. 
It all seemed to come too soon. And with that in mind, let's start reading today's passage. And I'm reading 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 to 20. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, our joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. See, in the past, Paul has said that he viewed his relationship to the new believers in Thessalonica just like a mother nursing her children. And no doubt, he's, he's speaking about sharing the basic principles of the gospel, and this discipling process was attended by love. And he found that he had begun to deeply love these new believers. But now, notice he uses the phrase, we were torn from you. You see, I see an image of a mother with a baby, and suddenly, for, for whatever reason, the baby is torn from her arms, and she never sees him or her again. You know, it's hard to get a sense of just how deep such an agony would be. May such a scenario never happen to us. But, says Paul, without thinking, I'm exaggerating the claim, this is exactly what my experience was like with you. In the midst of a rich ministry and love, at a time in which Paul knew that his work was only beginning, and which he could see that that fruit from this place would be enduring, suddenly he's thrown out of the city and he feels bereft of them. You know, indeed, the phrase torn from is probably better translated as the NIV does, we were orphaned by being separated from you. We felt our family had been taken from us and suddenly we felt alone. Now, I do notice that there is a note of hope here. Paul adds this was but for a short time. Now, at first, that phrase sounds curious. I mean, is Paul saying that when he wrote 1 Thessalonians, he had only been away from them for a short time? Well, perhaps. But he might also be saying that his anguish, which was so pronounced, was shortened because he felt even though he was orphaned in person, he was not orphaned in heart. The bond of love between them had still remained. But then out of his soul anguish, Paul then says, he made every effort to get back there to Thessalonica. But then notice, he doesn't say, look, the situation in Thessalonica, I mean, the the hatred of the synagogue leaders and the prejudices of the mob and the, the cowardice of the city leaders to deal justly with us, all of that just simply conspired against us. No, no, he doesn't say that. Notice it. Rather, he says, Satan hindered us. And if we think about it, that must have been obvious. In Ephesians 6, verse 12, Paul would write, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, the ultimate cause of all the harm that comes to the church is Satan and his dark rulers in the heavenly places. The reason for the mob in Thessalonica was that they were ultimately inspired by Satan. And then the political situation that prevented Paul from returning was also inspired by Satan. See, by the way, there are some who feel that another possible reason why Paul didn't return to Thessalonica was because he became sick. And they mean here that Paul's thorn in the flesh, I mean, the one he writes about in in 2 Corinthians, might have been the reason. Now, you might remember that Paul had called that thorn a messenger of Satan. And others suggest that that wasn't the reason. The reason was that Jason had to put up a security bond 
that forced him to pay for the riot in Thessalonica, but it might also have contained a guarantee that Paul would never have been allowed to return. However it turned out, Paul was in no doubt at all about the ultimate cause of these turn of events. Satan was working hard never to let their missionary or evangelist gospel preacher back into the city. Satan was working to ensure that this church would be bereft of their principal teacher. And furthermore, when Paul says Satan prevented us, he's using military language. He's saying Satan blocked us, like when one army cuts off a roadway to prevent the other army from gaining an advantage. We notice that Paul is keenly aware of the military strategy Satan is employing both against him and the Thessalonian church. Satan wants to defeat them utterly and end all witness to Jesus in Thessalonica. You know, and then Paul says something that a few have thought most curious. Look again at verses 19 and 20. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. I say this is strange because the crown Paul mentions carries the image of a laurel wreath that was given to the winner of a race at any athletic contest. In other words, Paul says, yeah, it may be true that we were ripped from each other's arms, and it may be true that Satan very strategically blocked our roadway back to you. But in the end, we got the prize because we bested Satan. We won this strategic battle. But how? How are we boasting before the Lord over this victory won? Well, the answer is, Paul says, you're the crown. You're our victory prize. See, I want you to see, says Paul, that when you came to Christ, Satan not only lost the battle, he lost you. You had been locked into his dark fortress following the ways of this world and following the prince of the power of the air. But when Jesus returns, he will present you before his throne, and there is no greater victory than to present the redeemed, those who have been held captive in Satan's fortress and who have been made the children of God what evangelism is. It's smashing down Satan's front door and dragging his captives out and presenting them before the throne. You see, from Paul's perspective, he never forgot what victory looked like. He was able to take his eyes from his personal sorrows and his feelings of being orphaned, and he focused on this truth. A great victory in this warfare had been won. Sarah wrote, Dr. Neufeld brings scripture to life with depth, practicality, challenge, and hope. The world has changed. Technology has made everything closer. Ministries have changed, and yet Back to the Bible has remained constant in its values and teaching. You do a marvelous work, and I look forward to hearing you every day. Well, messages like this help us feel we're hitting the mark. And with God's blessing, people of every age and background are being impacted through faithful Bible teaching. Our special thanks to all those who listen and support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. So please continue to stand with us with your prayers and gifts, and Back to the Bible Canada will continue to do all it can to impact lives with the gospel. You can join us in this effort with your financial support by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or by visiting backtothebible.ca. Paul had come to a conclusion. In spite of hatred and mob riots, he had scored a great victory over the evil one in Thessalonica. 
but we might still wonder about that. You know, the Thessalonian Christians were still so young in their faith and they might very well have fallen away. In our day, we constantly hear of people falling away. You know, one of the things we hear quite often is, you know, where is God when things get tough? And so we doubt the goodness of God because we live in especially dark times. And so we ask, why can't the good old days just come back? After all, isn't that what God is about? Isn't he good? And therefore, shouldn't we be living in the good days? But sometimes we're not, and we doubt the goodness of God. See, one of the things that a great many Christians fail to realize is the intensity of the spiritual warfare around them. So let's keep reading the text we're studying. We come now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. See, Paul's explaining what happened when he was torn away from the believers in Thessalonica. He continued to head south and eventually made his way to Athens. And it was there, and as you might remember, that he was distressed at how full of idols that city was. Indeed, from all the historical records we now possess, it's probably quite likely that there were more idols in Athens than there were people. Nonetheless, you'll remember his very famous sermon in which he mentions the unknown God, the one the Athenians didn't know, despite their idols. It's the God who has made all things. It's the God who sent his son into the world. But while Paul was in the center of his ministry in that city, you'll notice the words he uses in verse 5. He said he could bear it no longer. He means to say he was deeply concerned about these new Thessalonian believers. What if, he says, the tempter has tempted you to abandon your trust in your Savior? And by the way, you'll notice this is now the second time that Paul mentions Satan. First he called him Satan, but now he calls him the tempter, the one who comes to entice you to mistrust God. We're reminded of Eve's encounter with Satan in the garden. Did God really say you couldn't eat that fruit? Look, it's perfectly desirable. How could a good God prevent you from having what's clearly good? And then after that, Satan had said, for God knows that once you eat, you're going to be like God. The only reason God kept this from you is because he's jealous of what you could become. See, the role of the tempter is always to manipulate us to doubt the goodness of God. And perhaps that's what you're facing. Are you in distressing times? Maybe you've lost your job in these days and your future looks bleak. Do you fear for your health in the time of health crisis? Are you wondering if God has noticed or if he even cares? I mean, all of this is a part of the tempter's design. This is his declaration of warfare against you. This is his attempt to wrest you away from a God who sent his son to redeem you. Yet Paul's heart was drawn towards the Thessalonians. He'd been hearing in Athens about the outbreak of persecution back in Thessalonica, and he could hardly bear the stress. Was the church still intact? Had he shared enough of the gospel with them that would ensure that they would remain in Christ? Did they take to heart his warning that they would be persecuted? Were they strong enough to withstand this onslaught? Was their faith deeply rooted in Christ? Had Satan used 
Paul's absence to tempt them to abandon their faith. I mean, these thoughts pressed on him every day. He was weighted down with them. It was excruciating for him to continue to think of it that way. And what was he to do? So Paul came to a conclusion. If Timothy could only strengthen and encourage them, they'd be less disturbed. But he so desperately needed Timothy in Athens since he was being hard-pressed there. So Paul made a decision. Even though he couldn't afford to let Timothy go, Timothy had to go. Paul simply needed to know how they were doing, and he also needed to be sure that someone was encouraging them and strengthening them in their faith. And, And so Timothy left Paul at Athens, and he headed back north to minister to the new believers in Thessalonica. In effect, Timothy became their pastor at the early stage of their church's development. But there's still one more thing we should see when we study this passage. Paul says that it was his concern that no one should be moved or shaken or that no one should be unsettled by the afflictions. So we need to stop here and consider how important these words are. God wants his people to walk through deeply distressing times. He wants them to be solid, faithful, settled, deeply rooted. Look, for those of you who are unsettled in times of great distress, I mean, these words need to be read as God's instruction for you. You know, no doubt before Timothy left Paul at Athens and headed north, Paul was instructing the young pastor to make sure he helped God's people see the role and the purpose of difficult times. Then Paul adds something else, and if you aren't looking for it, you're going to miss it. Once you see it, you're going to be surprised. The end of verse 3 says, For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Please notice two things. First of all, you know that you are destined for this. See, I wonder, do you know those things? It's clear the Thessalonian believers knew it. Well, how did they know it? Verse 4, For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Well, now, how long had Paul been with them? You know, as we have seen, not much longer than three weeks, maybe a month and a half. And so for that period of time, he was teaching them about the basics of the faith. But even then, he was already telling them that a part of following Jesus means that we're destined to suffer affliction. That leads us to ask, is this a part of basic Christian teaching today? And if it is not, then the real question becomes, how did we miss this? Let me suggest just one example that comes from something D.A. Carson once said in Uh, He was teaching pastoral students at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield or in Chicago, and he noticed something that disturbed him deeply. He tells of his alarm at many of his students who were going into full-time ministry, that is, they chose a career in ministry out of a sense that this would be where they would be most fulfilled, and here are his comments. He says, how pathetic. I know pagans who find satisfaction and fulfillment by teaching nuclear physics. In any Christian view of life, self-fulfillment must never be permitted to become the controlling issue. The issue is service, the service of real people. The question is, how can I be most useful, not how can I feel most useful? The goal is, how can I best glorify God by serving his people, not how can I feel most comfortable and appreciated while engaging in some acceptable form of Christian ministry? And that is the issue. You know, some of us have been hijacked by the word faith ministry, that God will give you health and wealth in this life. But some of you have been hijacked in thinking that God is here to help you feel comfortable and satisfied and fulfilled. And you weren't taught 
that you're Christian soldiers marching us to war. You didn't anticipate hardship because you hadn't been given basic boot camp training, that you were destined for the battlefield and that you would face hardship and persecution and that all of this would come from the spiritual realm, that you had powerful enemies in the spiritual realm and that these realities would be manifested in your troubles in genuine hardship and in genuine distress. It's all about what you're expecting. If you've been told you'll be blessed and by that was meant that you would sail through calm waters and that this was your impression of the Christian life, well, quite frankly, I'm astonished that you're still a Christian. God never promised that. And if you're in Christ, that's not what you're facing. You're facing difficult times. And so like a good father, Paul told his spiritual children about the real world, the world in which demons of hell are enraged because of you, and they are using persecution and hardship to grind you down. But notice also, he says, we were destined for this. And I love that word because destined tells us that it was God's eternal plan to use hardship to establish his children. Never think persecution and hardship means God is not for you. God is for you. But recognize that spiritual warfare is your lot in life, and as you go through it, learn to trust God fully, knowing that there is hope in eternity for you. Be faithful unto death. He will give you the crown of life. Thanks so much, John. You know, I'm thinking to be persecuted is not something that anyone would really desire for themselves, and yet it's in persecution that the church seems to to rise. So should we be desiring to be persecuted? Yeah, I, <laughs> I think definitely not. I think we should not seek persecution. Um, there are some stories from the early church where there are some people who wanted martyrdom, and the church spoke with one voice discouraging that attitude. However, we do know that when persecution comes, it it comes to us because a gracious God is bringing in our hearts something that will change us in the experience. We'll be less inclined to have our hearts set on the things that are of this world, and we're going to more uh, think about the promises of God and the hope that we have in Him. Uh, When that happens, it can strengthen the church greatly, and it often has. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Remaining Steadfast in Distressing Times, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Whether it's the daily program with Dr. Newfeld, words of encouragement from Phil, or in doubt's weekly conversation with young people about questions of life and faith, each ministry of Back to the Bible Canada is designed for one purpose, to grow people in their daily walk with Jesus. This month is our fiscal year end, a critical time for each ministry. But today I wanted to focus your attention on in doubt. Young adults are facing challenging questions and hearing voices that influence how they think, feel, and live. In doubt makes a difference. If reaching young people for Christ is on your heart, perhaps you'd consider participating in our fiscal year end this month. The goal for In Doubt is to reach $75,000 by June 30th. Your gift would mean so much in reaching young people with Bible teaching they can trust. 
To give, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit indoubt.ca.